Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Let me pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have blessed us to live in a place and a time when we can have your word in our hands, when we can give ourselves to it uh, by the preaching of your word, the listening to your word, the memorization of your word. And we pray, having blessed us with so much freedom to come to you and to come to your word, that you would bless us more. Bless us with more of yourself. Bless us with grace to hold on to what we learn and what we discover. Uh, bless us, O oh Lord, to live out what we learn. So as we hide your word in our hearts, O oh Lord, we pray, keep us from sinning against you and propel us to live righteously for you. Help us to do this with the confidence that comes from knowing all of our sins have been forgiven, nailed to the cross because of Jesus, your son. And in his resurrection, we are declared righteous and we are given new and eternal life to live forever with you. Help us, O oh Lord, to live out of that truth, we pray, and speak to us as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are uh, in a series of sermons that we have called Instructions for the Church. It's our series through the book of 1 Timothy. And as you'll recall, we decided to dedicate this year and the teaching from the pulpit this year um, to what it means to be a church. We spent a couple of years, like all the other churches in the country, unable to meet. And in that inability to meet, we perhaps picked up some not-so-good habits. We perhaps learned some things about ourselves and the faith that have been quite good. Um, and maybe we're just out of some routines, and we've not been thinking about things the way we were prior to the pandemic. And so we've de dedicated 2022 to that sense, kind of replanting the church, reestablishing the church in first principles, in, in understanding about what a church is and how a church is to live. And that's precisely what this book is about. The Apostle Paul has written to his disciple Timothy to instruct Timothy in how to lead the church. He begins by, in chapter 1, telling Timothy that he's got to address these people who want to teach different doctrine. He's got to make sure that they don't do that, and he's got to make sure as a pastor that people don't swerve from the truth into uh, vain discussions and back to the law, which cannot save you. And as he continues in chapter 1, he thinks about his own ministry, the fact that Jesus has entrusted him with the gospel, and that, that puts him in verse 12 into this sort of spirit of thanksgiving. He begins to thank the Lord for giving him strength and appointing him to this ministry and judging him faithful. And he reflects on his own testimony, how he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but he found mercy because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's filled now with a, a personal sense of the gospel and a personal sense of God's mercy at work in his own life. And, and he, he, he drops back down to think about those false teachers, and he names them Hymenaeus and Alexander. And, and, and he worries that, you know, these folks are going to make shipwreck of their faith because they're departing from the truth. Comes to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, he begins to instruct the church on its gathered life, how, what it should do when it worships. And basically, chapter 2 is largely dedicated to the theme of prayer and what's appropriate in worship. So he wants men to lift holy hands in prayer, not in anger and quarreling. Uh, he, he wants the whole church to pray all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, for, for kings and those who are in high positions. 
And he wants women to conduct themselves in a way that's proper for godly women. And he's saying here, listen, the emphasis is not on braided hair or how you dress and all that good stuff. The emphasis on is on whether or not you dress with good works, whether or not you live in a way that your life adorns you, your life clothes you with virtue and, and good works. And then he begins near the end of chapter two to get into this issue of the teaching ministry of the church. Now, if you want to think more about what he says there about let women learn in silence, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, listen to last week's sermon. We won't cover that ground again, okay? But that moves him to chapter 3 to thinking about the offices of the church and what the church should look for in the various offices of the church. There are three offices here, I would contend. There is the pastoral office, which we'll consider this morning, verses 1 to 7. There is the the deacon, which we'll see verses 8 to about 13. But in the middle there also, what we might call deaconesses, women who serve as deacons. And so he begins to talk about each of those offices and what to look for for persons in those offices. And we're going to settle in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 3 this morning. I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time, because just before coming up here, I looked in my Bible for my sermon manuscript and realized I left it on the printer at home. So y'all going to get what God wants y'all to get. (laughs) Not not the extra stuff I wrote down, all right? Y'all just go get what God wants you to get. So let's pray. Father, help us this morning to look into your word, to teach your word, to declare what thus saith the Lord, um, to not be self-conscious and to to not be distracted, but to hear your voice, O Lord, uh, and to gather from your word what you have for your people this morning. Make the gospel clear. Make the scripture clear. Clarify our hearts and our thinkings. And lead us, O Lord, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think I had three points this morning. Like we were supposed to be what to look for in a a pastor, right? Um, First point is this. Look for someone who desires to be a pastor. We'll see that in verse 1. Look at my beloved son. Dedicated, hustling, appreciate you, boy. We're going to feed you today because of that. <laughs> Point number one. <laughs> Look for those who desire to be pastors. Number two. Look for those who display the character of pastors. And then number three. Look for those who can withstand the danger of being pastors. So we're thinking here about the desire the display of character, and the danger associated with pastoral ministry. And as we think about this, I pray the Lord would stir all of our hearts to pray for our pastors, to pray for more pastors like this, and to perhaps accept the call of the Lord to serve in this way. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone desires or aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. First thing we want to see here is that the church, when it's thinking about organizing itself and calling pastors, the church should look for those who desire to be a pastor. You see that there in verse 1. Now, this desire is really important. We know that because Paul starts the sentence this way. This is a trustworthy saying. Now, we've seen him say that before, haven't we? Back in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, this is a trustworthy saying and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm foremost. So Paul, in using this phrase here now to talk about the pastoral office, is in a sense putting it in the same category as the gospel itself. Now, the gospel, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, is of first importance. There's nothing more important than the gospel. That's, that's number one. That's in the pole position, right? And, and he tells us that gospel in chapter 1, verse 15, in, these, in this sort of simplified way, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the core message of Christianity. That's the core message of the pulpit. That's the core message of the Bible. That's the core message of the Christian life. That is the message that has made us Christian. When we heard the truth that the Son of God took on human flesh and came into the world to take our place, both in obeying God so that he could supply to God a perfect righteousness, which we do not have, and in dying on the cross to atone for our sins so that he could turn God's anger away from us because of the sins we committed. He had none. That he was buried and raised from the grave three days later to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice. When we heard that message, the Holy Spirit made us new. He gave us a new heart, and with that new heart, he, he wrote God's word on our heart, as it were, and with that new heart, he gave us the grace of turning from our sin and putting our trust in Jesus so that Jesus becomes our personal Lord and Savior, and we follow him as our master, and we hold fast to his promise that, that he is indeed going to and has saved us from our sins, and through faith in him, we will have eternal life in God's eternal kingdom. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, if you hear nothing else this morning, we want you to hear that message. And not just hear it, we want you to consider it. And not just consider it, we want you to believe it. And not just believe it intellectually, we want you to trust your whole life and soul over to it. God has sent his son into the world to save you from the judgment that's coming upon the world that you might live forever with him in his love instead of being rejected and judged by him eternally. Consider that you're a sinner like all of us. Consider that God has proven his love and given his son for you. Consider that you need to be rescued from judgment. And consider that God has freely offered that to you not asking you to make yourself worthy, not asking you to purchase it, but simply asking you to put your faith in his son. Today is the day of your salvation. Do not delay. Trust in him. 
Now, that's the core message of Christianity. That's the most important message in Christianity, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul introduces this message, as we said, in chapter 1, verse 15, with this same phrase, this is a trustworthy saying. And now he comes in chapter 3, verse 1, and he introduces the pastoral office with this same phrase. This is a trustworthy saying, which I take to mean that the Bible regards, in some sense, pastoral ministry, overseers, elders, shepherds, those are all synonyms, in some regards, regards that as important to the life of the church as the gospel. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think your pastors are necessary to your spiritual life? Do you think they hold a degree of importance that's something like the importance of the gospel to you? Now, pastors are just men. We're not trying to idolize pastors. We're not trying to puff up pastors or anything of that sort. We're just taking God's word here and and asking ourselves some questions based on God's word. As we come out of a pandemic where most of us have only had virtual pastors and maybe gotten used to a kind of unaccountability or or not sort of responding to instruction from our pastors, as we come back and we reassemble, this is the question I think the Lord would have us consider. Have we thought about the pastors that the Lord has given us as in somehow important to our spiritual lives as the gospel is important? This is a trustworthy saying. What's the saying? And Paul goes on there to tell us, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That's a true, trustworthy, uh, honorable uh, saying, truth that's meant to be accepted by the church. Aspiring to the pastoral office is a good thing. Desiring to shepherd God's people is a good thing. Paul uses two words that are pretty closely related here that are translated aspire and desire uh, in in that verse. Uh, The first word, aspire, is a word that sort of really brings to mind the internal desire, that that here's a person who who wants it internally, privately, um, on the inside. It's It's an ambition. And here, beloved, let me say to the brothers, I think God wants his men to be ambitious in a godly way. That that ambition is part and parcel to mature manhood and womanhood, right? If we're kind of listless and have no desire and have no direction, that's not consistent with a God who has a call on your life. That he has called you into purpose. He has called you into service. He has gifted you in various ways to serve. It may not be to pastoral ministry. It may be to something else. But there should be in each one of us a flame, a fire, a passion, an aspiration, a desire. I know we live in a world where we can sometimes be so beat down that we learn not to aspire. People start telling us things like be realistic or set your sights on something you can achieve. And before long, we find ourselves living in such a way that doesn't even require faith. Our lives become so small, we can live it in our own strength. But no, this is a calling that, that, that God gives and puts upon um, his people and, and calls us, men and women, to, to be, to have a godly ambition to serve the Lord. The other word that he used for desire is not about that sort of internal sense. 
it's, it's sort of desire as it expresses itself externally. So that internal desire becomes visible. We, we begin to act on that internal desire. We begin to make plans to pursue it. We begin to gather resources for it. We begin to order our lives around it. And we begin to do things that, that line up with that desire. And here we're talking about pastoral ministry. When a man has a, a sense of aspiration, then it, then it begins to be expressed in how they engage the, the people of God. In other words, they, they start to pastor without having the title. They start to elder and to shepherd in ways that, 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 that are clearly pastoral, even though they haven't yet been called to it. It's their desire going public. And this is why in the history of the church, um, we have, Christians have always thought of a calling to pastoral ministry as having two aspects, having an internal, subjective, or personal aspect, but that by itself is not enough. There's a whole lot of bustles who say, I feel called to ministry, and you look at their life, you're like, uh, you got a bad connection. I don't think nobody called you to that. So there's an internal part, but then that internal part has to be validated or affirmed by the external by the congregation sort of discerning with that person, by the other pastors discerning with that person, yes, we think we see this in you. What did you act and move, etc.? This is why, as a church here, the elders don't just sort of come to you and say, hey, Joe is now going to be an elder with us. Make that decision unilaterally. Joe has a sense of calling, so Joe's going to serve. No, that's not how that works. This is why we, we have a period where we make a nomination to the congregation. And we let that lay over for a couple of months. And we invite you and call you to pray and to discern together, is the Holy Spirit calling this person to serve in this way? That's the external affirmation of an internal call. So we need both parts of that. And desiring this and aspiring to this is good. Now let me say, let me say a word here to sort of, maybe qualify what we're saying about aspiration and ambition. Our aspiration and our ambition, in some sense, is only good when it's connected to good things. So there are people who have lots of aspirations and lots of desires that when you we examine them, you're like, ah, that, that, that doesn't seem very godly. So, so the key phrase here in verse 1 is Paul says he desires a noble task. It's not purely that desire is always good or ambition is always good. No, it's good insofar as connected to something that's noble, something that's praiseworthy, something that's excellent, something that, 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 that is right and good. And here, Paul is saying the pastoral ministry is a noble thing. It's right. It's good. It's excellent. It's praiseworthy. And an ambition that aspires to that noble thing is a good and godly ambition. In other words, this is something that ought to be wanted, ought to be desired. I mean, if God calls a thing noble, why wouldn't you and I want to do it? Now, I, I ask that question to somebody who, for a season of his Christian life, they won't have anything to do with pastoral ministry. Relatively young Christian, Felt the Lord calling me and burdening me, so that internal sense of desire I, I kind of had but didn't want to have. I didn't want to be associated with some hucksters and busters on TV. Like, Lord, you know, you got all these rascals on TV teaching all kind of crazy things. 
um, asking everybody for money, send me money for some oil, send me money for a towel, send me money for all this stuff. Like, I don't have nothing to do with that. I lead all the Bible studies you want me to lead. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll fill in the pulpit and preach, but don't make me a pastor. It wasn't until reading a couple of books on the, on the local church, the doctrine of the church, that the Lord used those books to give me a love for the local church that then a desire came. I had to get out of the way. I had to get out of the out of those fears, I got to get over those sort of, that resistance to not just those associations with TV preachers, but that resistance really to God's call. I had to get out of that and to love what God loves before I could give myself to it. And, and that may be some of you this morning. The Lord's placed a call on your life, whether it's pastoral ministry or whether it's something else, another kind of vocation. You feel that call, you see it, you know it's from the Lord. It's a good ambition, but something's in the way. Something's in the way. It could be fear. It could be a vision you had for your life that's different. It could be any number of things. And, and I would just ask you this morning, if God calls pastoral ministry, if God calls the calling on your life noble and good, why would we resist it? Why should we kick against it? I mean, Jesus himself is, is called the, 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 the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So if Jesus is a shepherd, Jesus is the great shepherd, and if God calls this a noble task, and if the task is in the same category of importance as the gospel, why would you or I not desire? Okay, find that thing, because that thing is hindering your walking in the purpose and the calling that God has on your life. And ask God to smash that thing, to remove that thing, that you might be free to serve God. So look for someone who desires it. Number two, look for those who display the character of a pastor, who display the character of a pastor. That's what I take from verses 2 to 4 or so, 2 to 5. Desire isn't enough. It must also be the, the right kind of uh, moral and spiritual character in place. And here, Paul gives us a, a couple things to note. First of all, he tells us to, to sort of think about the person's overall life, his overall life. That's what's meant by there, he must be above reproach. Or, or you must say, or you may have a translation that says, he must be blameless. Doesn't mean there aren't some people in the world that, that might be blaming them for something, but this is the kind of man who, when he is blamed, you go, actually, the person with the problem is the one doing the blaming. Right, your your sense of his integrity, your sense of his uprightness, your sense of his his conduct before the people is that it is overall good and blameless. This is sort of the the overarching sort of umbrella qualification. All the other qualifications really come beneath this one. Right? So Paul says, look for someone who is above reproach, and then he gets into the elders' home life. Right? You see, there are a couple of things that he says. Verse two must be the husband of one wife. Literally in the Greek, it says a, a one-woman man. So this means several things, I believe. Number one, it's not a polygamist, right? Doesn't have multiple wives, which would have been true in the ancient world, true in some parts of the world today. Number two, in character, he's not flirtatious. It's not someone who is just sort of dallying about with multiple women or 
or trading in crude jokes or innuendo or anything of that sort. Number three, I think this means that he's also not guilty of adultery. And he's, he's, not, he's not someone who has gone through an unbiblical divorce. He's not divorced the previous wife without grounds and, and moved on to the next woman. Right? This is not the kind of man who, who needs to be uh, in leadership of, of God's church. He needs to be a, a one-woman man. Now, the question is often asked, must the elder be married? Can a single person serve as an elder? I think yes. I don't think Paul means to rule out uh, a godly, self-controlled, single person. In doing that, he, Jesus couldn't be the head of the church. Paul himself couldn't be an apostle. So I don't think he's ruling out singleness here, but I do think he means to say that whether single or married, this person uh, is, is sort of committed to one bride. They're single, they're committed to, to Christ as bridegroom. They're married, they're committed to Christ as bridegroom and a spouse and nobody else. So his home life is defined by his dedication to his spouse. Number two, notice there in his home life, he's to manage his own household well. You see it there, verse four? He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, when the Bible talks about managing the household well here, it's not talking about like he's some CEO or some dictator who rules his home with an iron fist. Woman, bring me a beer. You know. Boy, don't you talk back to me. There might be a place to say, boy, don't talk back to me. But, but that's not the main way he leads, right? Managed well here means that the elder is someone who nurtures each member of the family. Now, brothers, I want you to note this because, again, in the culture and in our dealing with toxic masculinity, the idea that a man is a nurturer is foreign, but not in the Bible. Here, he is someone who is tender with his spouse. 1 Peter 3, 7, lives with his wife in an understanding way. And he is someone who is is caring with his children, does not provoke his children to wrath, right? He's gentle and kind, and he he nurtures his whole household. Phil Riken puts it this way. The father is the leader who governs their household, but the way he does this is by caring for the needs of each family member. And the result of that, you'll see, is that he he leads in a dignified way. He manages household with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So his kids honor him. To quote Riken again, a man who treats his children respectfully will earn their respect. A man whose children respect him must be a a good father, which is exactly what what the church is looking for. Now, again, does that mean the children never disobey? They're children. That's what children do. Vipers in diapers, right? (laughs) They're born with a sin nature. The only thing you you don't have to teach your child to do is sin, right? Pastor's kids sin too. (laughs) Pastor's kids sin too. And, 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 And alongside of that, they're just kids. They're trying to figure the world out. They're growing up. They're going to make mistakes, right? So we're not in this, in this qualification, we're not sort of saying, hey, the pastor's job is to reduce his children to these kinds of robots who see nothing, do nothing, say nothing, don't move, right? That's, that's not what's happening here. But he is a person of such nurture and such maturity that he can take that little bundle of joy, he can take that little bundle of sin, he can take that young person working through adolescence, and he can shepherd them. 
He can guide them. Listen, sometimes the best qualification, the best way to observe this qualification is to see what a man does when his kid goes off the rails rather than just watching for whose kids seem outwardly to always be, you know, on their P's and Q's. Because sometimes a kid goes off the rail and a, and a good dad sort of comes alongside them and, and restores them and corrects them and appropriately perhaps punishes them or disciplines them uh, and leads them back in the way. That's a pretty good indication that spiritually when you and I go off the rails, he's going to be able to do that with us. And I've been pastoring long enough to know that you and I are going to go off the rails sometimes. We ain't going to want to do right. We ain't going to want to listen to the word. We're going to want to choose our own way. And we rebel in different ways, sometimes outwardly and wild and sometimes quietly and, and politely. And what you need is a pastor who can take the child of God and shepherd the child of God in a nurturing way back to the path of God. That's what's in view here in terms of managing his own household well. And that's what we want to look for in people who aspire to be pastors. So he's talked about the overall aspect of his life above reproach. He talks about the pastor's home life, but he also talks about the pastor's personal life. He talks about the pastor's own spiritual maturity. He does that in both sort of positive qualities to look for and negative qualities to avoid. You see that in verses two and three? Verse two, he gives us the positive qualities that not only is the husband of one wife, but he is sober-minded. means he has gravitas. It's kind of weighty in some ways. You know how you feel when you talk to Babatunde, right? And he kind of leans over and looks at you. And he hits you with that deep Nigerian version of Barry White voice. Right? And there's a sense of which, you know, you know he loves you, but you know you ain't going to trifle with him either. Right? You kind of you straighten up. There's a gravitas about him. That's what we're looking for in an elder. But not only that, but self-control. And this has come up several times, even in chapter 2. And this comes up often in Paul's writings. Paul really sees a tight connection between self-control and the gospel, self-control and the spirit and the spirit's work in our lives. This is maybe, you could, you could disagree with me on this if you want to, it's just an opinion. Um, you, you might say that in Paul's writings, self-control is almost the, the most important aspect of maturity. That what the gospel produces, what the spirit produces when it matures us is the ability to master ourselves, to master our thinking, to master our heart, to master our behavior. And that's what you're looking for in a pastor, someone with some self-mastery. Right? You, you don't want someone in God's household who is just overrun by their desires, right? And overrun by every fad because they're going to run over you based on their desires and their fads. You, know, you want someone who has self-control, who can harness themselves in this way. And he goes on to talk about someone being respectable. That's, that's close to sober-minded. You, you, sober-minded, you might have temperate, um, respectable. You know, someone who maintains, as we'll see a little bit later, a, a, a good standing with other people inside and outside the church. And hospitable. Love strangers. Someone who sees somebody new to the church, and he goes over and greets them, welcomes them, makes sure they're comfortable. And our poster boy for that is Pastor Tim. And I can tell you, I, I meet new people at the church at the door or at some point as they've been coming, and, and I get to talk to them, and I can't tell you how many times 
you know, the first name that tumbles out their mouth is Pastor Tim. He greeted us on our first day, really just listened to us and engaged us. I kept coming because of him. Right? That's, that's hospitable, someone who loves the stranger. But it's also hospitable is someone who opens their home or opens their heart and, and, and shares with other people. So the around-the-table ministry, uh, an elder is probably somebody who is volunteering in an around-the-table ministry, opening their home to, to newcomers, to, to break bread with them, to, to serve a meal to them, and, and to befriend them in that way. Those are the positive qualities. And what I want to say about those qualities so far is that all of those qualities somewhere else in the Bible are actually commanded of all Christians. So the elder is not a superman. The pastor is not some kind of being different from regular Christians, right? Um, He's a Christian, like all the other Christians, who by God's grace has grown in these qualities enough that in some ways they stand out as examples, examples to follow and to benefit from. But all these things are applied to Christians. Um, The only one that's not is the next one, able to teach. Not all Christians are called to be able to teach in the same way, but all Christians do teach, right? That's all Christians have a part in the Great Commission, which is to go into the world, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and teaching them to obey everything God has commanded. We all have a part in that, but now the elder, the pastor, is one who has a lead part in that to teach God's word, to shape God's people by the word, to help them to learn to follow Jesus in a faithful way. This doesn't necessarily mean they are pulpit preachers, though many will be. They may be great in smaller settings, small groups, or great one-on-one. So I don't think Paul is saying here that the elder must be a preacher um, in terms of some public ministry in this way, but I do think they should have the ability to make God's word plain and to apply it to God's people so that they benefit and are edified by it. Those are the positive qualities. Now, in his personal life, there's some things that he he needs to avoid, too. Notice there in verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So he, he can't be a drunkard. He can't be sort of controlled by wine. He must be filled with the Spirit, right? Can't be controlled by any other sort of intoxicating substance. So in our day, you know, he's, he's not on meth, right? In our day, he's not smoking marijuana. In, in our day, he's not given over to any number of pharmaceutical <laughs> products that lead to a loss of self-control, that lead to intemperance. No, he's controlled by the Spirit. And not only is he not a drunkard, but notice also he's, he's not um, he's not violent, but gentle. Well, now, now Paul is telling us to look for somebody that looks like Jesus. Right? It's true. Jesus made a whip and drove people out of the temple. But he's not ordinarily violent. There was one incident in a unique point in history. On his way to the cross, he cleanses the temple. But what does he say about himself? All ye who are what, weary and heavy laden, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Why? It's because I'm, I'm gentle. I'm meek and lowly of heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. So, so the elder is one who should be entering into that Jesus-like ministry of helping the people find 
gentleness, not, not violence, not brawling, right? Not fists, but the gentleness of the Lord and the rest of the Lord that comes with that gentleness. The next is kind of like it, not, not quarrelsome, not argumentative. Wish we could put this in neon all over the American church. Pastors ought not be quarrelsome, right? Not always looking for an argument. No, instead they're looking to be leaders toward peace and unity. And then finally, notice what he says here, not a lover of money. That one needs to be a neon above, not quarrelsome, right? And there are many ways to love money, beloved. There are many ways to love money. And that love for money, Paul will tell us a little bit later, is the root of all kinds of evil, even evil in the church among leaders. So you have some folks who you see coming. They're very explicit. They are, they are hawking their wares, and, and they are making up theology in order to justify lavish lifestyles and greed. I don't care how often I get invited to go preach at somebody's conference. I don't care how far the Lord allows me to go around the world to preach somewhere. I don't need my own jet. I should have heard a loud amen. I don't need my own jet. I don't need my own jet, right? I don't need to fly first class unless they give me a free upgrade. I can sit back there in the cattle car with everybody else, right? Knees all up in the seat, trying to get comfortable. That's all right. That's for my sanctification. It is. It is. I don't need a 20-bedroom house with 25 bathrooms on an estate so far out in the county that y'all can't never come see me. Pastors should smell like sheep. Be among the people. Now, I don't think this is a vow of poverty. If you go over to 1 Corinthians, Paul is really clear. Someone who labors in the word should be able to make their, earn their living from the word, and, 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 and that's great. But the love of money is a different thing. Right? And there's a, there's a sort of explicit ways, and there are these sort of subtle ways, too, that, that pastors can do this kind of thing. I, I've seen pastors kind of milk the, the sympathy and the care of the congregation by always just kind of dropping out little hints about their needs, which actually look a whole lot like their wants. Those little bitty hints and, and people begin to respond to that. Oh, pastor needs, let's, let's, let's take a special offering or let's do this. No, beloved. We should live within the means that God provides. I should say, as a, as a congregation, you provide generously for us as pastors, right? And if we're the kind of people who live with self-control and the other things that are listed here, we should be able to make it, right? Um, praise God. You're looking for someone, particularly if they become part of the paid pastoral staff, that lives like that, not a lover of money, right? Not greedy for gain not thinking of the ministry as an opportunity to exploit the people. This is not a personal corporation. This is not my business. This, this is our family, right? And the money that's here, the resources that are here, that's Jesus' money. And we want to use it for Jesus' purposes, right? So we want to avoid the kinds of things that we see in verse 3. Let me make a couple applications of this, 
We're thinking here about the pastor's character, the display of, of godly character. Let me make three quick applications. Because these, quali- because these characteristics are, are said of all Christians in other parts of the Bible, all of us should aspire to this character, right? So don't just aspire to a calling, also aspire to the character that is fitting the calling, right? So I get nervous about young guys who say, hey, I want to preach. Great. Why? I love preaching. Okay, we're going to let that simmer a while, right? Because there's a difference between loving to be up front talking and loving God's people and trying to help them by the ministry of the word. Preaching ought to be an act of love. Leadership ought to be an act of love. Right? That's, what, that's what we're looking for here. And, and these characteristics should be true in all of our lives. And so we want not only the calling, but we want the character that goes along with this. And, and to the men of the church in particular, since we're talking about pastoral ministry, I believe, just as an application, every man in this church ought to aspire to be qualified to be an elder, even if they're never called to be an elder. We should all aspire. If this is a description of maturity, of Christian maturity, we should all aspire to this kind of maturity, even if God never decides to give us the desire to serve in that way. Does that make sense? Right? So we shouldn't be able to throw a rock in this church without hitting a man who's qualified in character. And that means we should probably not ever have a problem having enough pastors in the church if we are aspiring to this kind of character. Does that make sense? Aspire to this. Number two, in terms of application, the church should learn to recognize these qualities, right? So it's the church, it's the congregation's responsibility to call someone to this office, to to give that external calling, to go along with the internal calling, and we should learn to look for these things, not the wrong things. So we're not looking for popularity. We're not not looking for um, eloquence. We're not looking for how slick they dress. We're not, we're not looking for just how influential they are in the world. That's not God's list. None of those things are on this list. God doesn't say, okay, here's what you do. Go find someone who's a leader in the nonprofit world, or go find someone who's a leader in the corporate world, or go find someone who's a leader in the military, and then assume that they can lead my church. This not say it at all. And there may be people who are very competent leaders in those other areas who would be a disaster in the church. It'd be a disaster to run a church like the military. It'd be a disaster to run a church like a business. It would even be a disaster to run a church like a nonprofit organization. Because the church is something different altogether. It is a spiritual family beneath the fatherhood of God and the lordship of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit. And there are ways in which we may look a little bit like those other things, but in essence, we're an entirely different kind of organism. And so we need leaders fit for that kind of organism. And so as a church, we want to pray about these things and discern these things. As we nominate someone to you or you think someone may be qualified to to shepherd or pastor, pull out this list and, and measure their life against these things. Do we see these things in their life to a degree that we think is exemplary and they're qualified to lead and serve in this way. Last application. Women, look for this in your potential husbands. Pray for this in your actual husband. Right? 
if one more sister say to me, they looking for a sanctified thug. Y'all going to have to raise some bail money. <laughs> if one more sister say to me, oh, I want him, I want him all. I need a prison body and tatted and thugged out, but he got to praise Jesus. You know why that's hard to find? Because a thug and Jesus are two different things. Those things don't come together. And if you find it together, I'm not sure which one you could trust. Can you trust the thug? Is it really Jesus? I'm trying to help somebody. <laughs> I'm trying to help somebody. Look for godliness. Stop looking for what kind of clothes he wears. Stop, stop looking for biceps. I mean, you know, biceps might be on your list, but you'd be way down here. I suspect, I suspect that in Christian churches, too many Christian churches, there are two problems. One, brothers. We need more ambition in aspiring to marriage. And we need to step out, and we need to take some risks, and we need to ask the sister out. That's one problem. The other problem is this. I suspect that when a brother does work up the nerve to ask out a sister, and he got on some Payless shoes, right? And maybe he got his work uniform on, the security guard, he didn't show up dapper, but he showed up godly. I suspect that too many sisters are looking at whether or not he's dapper than whether or not he's godly. And have decided, amen, amen, praise the Lord, sis. Praise the Lord. See, that's wisdom right there. That's somebody, that, that's somebody who's lived long enough. Now, her husband is also dapper, okay, just for the record. He's dapper and godly. Listen, <laughs> listen, it's easier to buy a suit than it is character. All right? So if you, if you want him to dress a certain way, okay, don't worry about that right now. We're about character. And if he's a man of good character, then you can give him gifts all the time. Buy that rascal a shirt. Buy him some slacks. That's easy to fix. That's easy to fix. But character isn't. And so forget about this notion of a, a sanctified, Jesus-worshiping thug. Look for godliness in your spouse. And, it, and it's likely going to come in a package you weren't looking for. Oh man, I'm done. All right. Third point. We've, and we're done. Third point. Third point. Look for those, when we're thinking about pastors, look for those who can withstand the danger of being pastors. I, want, I take that from verses 5, 6, and 7. Three dangers. Number one, there's the danger of incompetence in caring for others. Right, So the whole justification for why he should be able to manage his household well is in verse 5, right? For how can he basically take care of God's house if he can't take care of his own house? If he's incompetent to lead his own home, a small church with a, a wife and maybe two or three or four or five kids, how is he going to be competent to lead God's big church of 180 members or 200 members or 2,000 members, right? This is a version of basically being faithful in the small things, and God will make you faithful in the big things, right? And there's a danger where, as guys, we can be drawn 
to something like pastoral ministry and, and be drawn away from the, the, the sort of prior responsibility in ministry of managing our homes. And, and, and we can be drawn to pastoral ministry because it looks like there are lights on it, right? It, it, looks, it, it looks like something that I should aspire to because, you know, I get to be up front, I get to lead, I, I get notoriety from it. We may even think that we're heroes for being pastors, but there are no heroic pastors that neglect their families. I love a story that's told in a book that we read in, in our leadership training about the son of, of, of famed mountain climbing. I think he was the first guy, I forget his name, to climb the Himalayas or something. And, and he gets old, he dies, and an interview is done with his son, and the interview has gone on about, you know, how, how great a deed that was and how proud the, the son must be. And the son's an adult now, and the son basically with sadness says, I, I just wish he would have thrown the ball with me. Always off climbing some mountain. And the writer of the book asked this question, what if the mountain was not the Himalayas? What if the mountain's in the living room? What if the real peak to climb is spending time with your children and loving your wife? So we, we don't want to fail to recognize that there's a danger in this calling of being drawn away from the household, being incompetent in our household, and then trying to manage God's household. That's not how it's supposed to work. There's a second danger here. Dangers two and three point out just how much spiritual warfare is involved in this. There's the danger of swelling pride and condemnation. Verse six. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Something about the folks who are new to the faith that Paul is concerned about, that it, that it might make them more vulnerable to pride, to become puffed up. Paul says to use that same phrase in 1 Corinthians 8.1 when he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Right? This is someone who's maybe taken with the office and taken with knowledge and in their youthfulness become swollen, become puffed up with pride, with conceit. And in so doing, notice now, in so doing, they fall into the condemnation of the devil. Satan was cast out of heaven because of his pride. God hates pride. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Right? And so we want an elder who, is, who understands that this is a, a dangerous part of his calling to, to be swept away into pride and the condemnation of the devil. Number three, the danger of being a public jerk and a disgrace to the church. See it there in verse 7? He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so they may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. You know, it's possible sometimes to have a good reputation inside the church and a lousy reputation outside the church. And that happens when we play church on Sunday, but then live, live like demons Monday to Saturday, right? And, and Paul says now, no, a, a pastor ought to have a good reputation, not just with Christians, but with people who don't know Jesus, with, with outsiders. So if this person is a, is a jerk in their workplace, but they may be wonderfully kind to church, they're not fit to pastor. Right? If they're known in the community as the, as the angry guy, the old guy with the wife beater t-shirt on, yelling at the kids, stay off my lawn. Right? But in the church, they're praising Jesus. Those two things don't go together. Right? So we, we don't want to look for men who are, who are publicly jerks, but then in the church, 
are thought to be leaders. No, we, those two things, integrity matters to be who you are in the church and outside the church, to be the same godly person is what you're looking for here. And the reason is we don't want that person and the church to fall into disgrace. Just think about that phrase and think about the news over the last several years. So many instances of pastors and churches falling into disgrace. The pastor has a curated image inside the Christian world, but privately is living in all kinds of unfaithful and tawdry ways. Pastors going to jail because of scamming the IRS or PPP loans. Pastors being arrested because of abuse of various sorts. Pastors bringing disgrace upon the church in the way they handle social unrest and social justice issues and a whole host of things. These things ought not be so, beloved. Ought not be so. Because our churches need leaders who have a good reputation on the outside as well as the inside so that Satan in his traps, in his snares, doesn't clutch us and catch us and disparage the good name of Christ. So, beloved, look for a display of character. And through that character, look for someone who can withstand the dangers and the temptations of the ministry. And look for this godly desire. We get that trifecta, then we will have the man of God that the Lord has given to the church as a gift to serve and to lead his people. May we always know that leadership. May God always be kind and gracious to his church. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you would continue to be kind to your church, to bless your church, in part by giving to your church the kinds of leaders that we see here in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. We thank you for how our pastors model so much of this imperfectly, certainly, but by your grace, truly, and actually. We ask for grace, O oh Lord, to, to grow in the ways that we need to grow. And we ask for grace for your people to benefit both by the things we do well, but also by the, the growth that we hope and trust they see in us. And we pray that you make us a discerning church, that we might call forth brothers who would serve in this way, who would desire this noble task, who would display the, the qualities that are necessary, and who would be able with your grace and spirit to withstand the dangers of the office. Do this for our blessing, we pray. In Jesus' name.